Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack English and this is City Hall Stories. These are conversations with local government leaders who are imagining, designing and creating our future societies. Aspirational governance is the most effective way to build a healthier future. And this podcast is built to be a source of inspiration for anyone who looks out their window and says, let's do better. I hope the incredible humans you'll hear from deliver that inspiration. When it comes to local government, Kevin Knutson has been there and done it. Now the Assistant County Administrator for Pinellas County, Florida, he's led over 200 government consulting projects, sat in the City Manager's Office of Reno, Nevada, spent time in Canada as the Vice President of a GovTech firm, and so much more. He has insight for days, and today he shares it on the lessons government should take from the private sector, what it really means to be a smart government, and how to ensure that every voice at the table feels heard. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Knutson. I've been looking forward to this conversation, Kevin, because you've spent quite a bit of time on the dark side. And what I guess I mean by that is the private sector. So in addition to your extensive local government uh, work, you've spent a lot of time working in GovTech and management consulting. And I think that's where I'd like to start the conversation. So would you be able to walk us through some of the crucial differences, be that from how people are managed, how goals are set, how incentives work, whatever it might be? Sure. You know, the the thing I think is most interesting about the difference between the two is that they're really more similar than they are different. So when it comes to managing people and processes and things like that, it's really not that different between the public and private sector. Where you really run into differences is in two things. One is kind of the motivation of why people join certain organizations. And the second one is um, the mission or, or the way that people see the role of that organization. On the software uh, side of things, people were really interested in, in enriching themselves, you know, making a, a good living and, and perhaps even getting rich from creating this really great product that people would buy, where you don't really see that in local government. Folks aren't in it to, to amass wealth or anything like that, which gets to the underlying mission issue. They're, they're related to each other. There's the personal issue of why you choose to work in a certain organization, but there's also the mission of the organization. And what I'm about to say, I think, is actually changing a little bit. You see people like Simon Sinek talking about start with why and you know what is the mission of our organization? What is our meaning in the world? In private sector, you see more and more of that. In the past, that wasn't there as much. Where it is in the public sector, the whole reason that these organizations exist is to create value in the community, to regulate things, to enhance things, to to provide services. And so what you have in private sector is an arm's length transaction. I'm going to create a product. You're going to pay me for it. I'm going to make a profit. What you have in local government and the public sector is we're all part of this community and I'm going to do what I can to make it better. When you pay taxes, you don't get a one-to-one return on your investment. Some people are going to get more than what they pay for. Some people are going to get less because it's the entire community that benefits rather than that arm's length transaction where people get the value that they pay for. So I think that's a major difference in, in kind of the mission of the organizations and how they work. The other thing that I would point out is that you know people will say, oh, you should run government like a business. And, and there's a lot of folks who'll jump in and say, well, no, there's no profit motive. And no, it doesn't make sense to do that because you know, we, we want to be more part of the community. And I think what they really mean by that is that we should adopt the process management tools of private industry, You know, be as efficient as we can with tax dollars to provide the highest level of service at the lowest cost, and to look at outcome-based management so that we're, we're affecting the change in the community that we intend to. And so I think there is room you know, for using business tools in local government as long as we understand that it's not exactly the same. 
So is every mission in local government, be it a massive county in a small town, essentially the same? Or should each specific local government have their own mission that is based on their own residents' interests, their material realities that surround them? How does a local government go about determining what its mission is on a grand macro scale? Well, there are some things that all local governments have in common. You know, they get their money from people paying taxes or fees or charges, and then they turn around and provide services. Now, where you get that local flavor is, well, what are the services? Some are mandated, you know, public safety, infrastructure, things like that that are mandated, you have to provide. But how you provide it, to what level you provide it, you know, what types of decisions you make along the way can change from community to community, even people who are near each other. And so that's where the flavor of the mission really starts to come in and where you want to gather input from the community is what kind of community do we want to be? Yeah, we're going to have roads just like our neighbors, but do we want to have winding country roads versus busy urban roads? Do we want to have a lot of traffic controls or do we want to you know, give a little bit more freedom? And so those individual decisions shape how each community sees itself and what they try to affect. But they're all doing the same kinds of things. And that's why I find it so fascinating, having worked with a couple hundred different communities across the U.S., many of them are doing the same kind of things. Many of them have the same kind of uh, services that they're providing, but they're all uniquely flavored to fit the local community. Going on that, are there any interesting examples of communities that may look identical? They might even abut each other, right? They might be neighbors, but have gone about a specific issue or uh, addressing a specific service area in a radically different way from each other? Yeah, there's an example I like to use because I spent 17 years working for the city of Coral Springs in Florida. It's a bedroom community of Fort Lauderdale, um, about 130,000 population. And it shares a long border with um, Parkland, who's just to the north, a very similar community in a lot of respects in terms of demographics, um, you know, average family income and things like that. But in Coral Springs, they planned for commercial um, and industrial uses within the town. And in Parkland, they don't want that. They didn't want commercial uh, at all. They wanted to be a bedroom community. They wanted to focus on uh, the housing. They had some horse farms. They wanted to be more rural in their nature rather than suburban. And so you literally drive across the border and you can tell when you've driven across because one is, you know, very very much a planned community with all kinds of infrastructure. Uh, You've got your shopping, you know exactly where to go for the things you need. And the other, you go in and there's a bunch of folks in homes and things. And in fact, a lot of their people have to go into Coral Springs to go to Walmart, for instance, because there isn't one in Parkland. And so it's two communities with similar people, similar, uh, they're right next door to each other. They both back up right to the Everglades. They both have the same issues and concerns, but they've decided on different approaches. And, And one's not better than the other. They're just different. And so you choose your community based on what your values are and where you want to live. Actually, coming back to that first point about your work across the divide of both public and private sector, are there any huge lessons that you, having worked for so long in the private sector, uh, when coming back to the public sector, actually brought with you or always try and drill into your colleagues in terms of, at a very specific level, this is how we should do business, this is how we should interact with our residents, whatever it may be? Well, one of the things that I learned early on, and, and thankfully I, I, I caught the lesson uh, right at the beginning of becoming a consultant, was that although they're hiring you to be an expert in something, you don't start with your expertise. You start with learning. You start with questioning. You start with being open to feedback and input from, in the case of a local government person, it would be your constituents, and in the case of a consultant, it would be your client. And 
the more time you spend listening to what their specific circumstances are and the constraints that they're dealing with and, and the resources that they have, the more you can help them find a path to success that leverages the, the strengths that they have and, and helps fill any gaps that they might have. And so as a consultant, we didn't say, oh, here's the best practice. You should do it that way. We said, here's the best practice that works somewhere else. Let's see how we can apply it in your community given the unique circumstances that you have, given the resources you have and things like that. Well, learning that as a consultant, bringing back to the um, the public sector has allowed me to say, we should take that same approach in designing our services when, when we're thinking about how we're going to deliver um, services to the community. So we should be talking to the stakeholders, the constituents who are directly impacted by this. And instead of saying, hey, we're the experts, we know how to do this, you know, really draw them into a conversation about how do you experience this service? What are your needs around this? So what are your expectations around this? And, and how are we meeting them so far? And what could we do differently? It helps us uh, both in terms of process design, you know, how are we doing the delivery of these services, but also in terms of strategy. You know, what is the outcome that we're trying to achieve and, and what is the end goal of doing all this work? So admittedly, I've only kind of seen one side of the equation working in the private sector, but as it pertains to the private sector doing business with local government and vice versa, local government doing business with the private sector, what are some key things that each side fundamentally don't understand about the other uh, and would be much better suited if they did understand, whether it's how businesses understand that local governments procure or do business internally or whatever it might be? Yes. Uh, the biggest lesson that I took into the private sector was that the democratic process, the, the give and take of decision making in local government is long by design. You'll hear a lot of folks in private industry who want to do business with government say, wow, the sales cycle on this is just murdering us. It takes 18 months to get to yes. Why can't they just make a decision? And it's not that they can't make a decision. It's that in making the decision, they need to go through a process for two reasons. One is to include diverse perspectives and make sure that they're making a decision that works for the community. And the second one is, is they are entrusted with the public treasury, right? It, the money comes in and they have a role of protecting that. That is the community's money, not their money. And so they have to be very deliberate and careful and ethical in the way they spend it. And getting a, an organization you know, who's trying to sell to government to understand that helps them plan for why those cycle times are so long and helps them to provide better information to the local government in making the decision. And so really that communication is so important because if you understand how the democratic process works, you, you will be much more successful in your sales. And I think the reverse is kind of true as well. You know, when, when government tries to do business, when they try to buy products and things from the private sector, they often are really, you know, trying to minimize risk and, and, and not take any chances when in fact, maybe a little bit of risk would be the right thing to do. Maybe changing, you know, the type of product, loosening up the, the standards, allowing private industry to guide you in your decision making because they have the ability to to be innovative and, and change things you know you need to be open to that don't don't give them a hundred rules and hoops they have to to jump through but rather allow them to be part of the process for designing the right solution in recent years we've seen really an explosion of interest from venture capital and private equity into the private sector side of government services are you optimistic about this or cynical in the sense of are these really benefiting public servants' lives, some of these tools and technologies, or are these just more fancy ways to siphon money from the public purse toward the private sector? Well, at the base of that question is the question of 
what is good customer service in the public sector. And I would argue that local governments tend to be risk averse and therefore tend to take less chance on trying new technologies to the, the deficit of our constituencies. Folks are used to dealing with companies where they can go online, order something, um, have a conversation through Twitter, resolve a problem by going through LinkedIn. You know, there's they have so many avenues and so many ways of doing it. And yet when they have to go get their driver's license, there's one option. You go down and stand in line. You know, you make your reservation and, and you show up on time. And I think that is a detriment uh, to the folks in our community because their lives are not structured around our business processes. I've been really encouraged by the growth of technology in, in our sector, by the um, accessibility to different ways of doing it, to the openness that I'm seeing local governments have now, particularly because the pandemic forced us to behave differently. It forced us to be able to communicate via video conference that a lot of people did not want to do before that. It forced us to make things uh, accessible online that they were uncomfortable with before. And taking payments online was was difficult for many small communities. So the changes that have happened have been for the best. They've been positive and they will continue to grow. That said, anytime that you have um, a changing market like this, you're going to have folks rushing in and trying to do things. You know, one of the, the phrases I love is, is smart city because that is a marketing thing completely. Who doesn't want to be smart, right? So we're going to say our latest product will help you be a smart city. And I have a lot of thoughts around that. I don't think buying products makes you smart. And I don't think products that are in search of a market are necessarily the best way for you to improve your services to the public. Instead, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, what does being a smart city mean? What I would say is, is it means collecting data about what you're doing, analyzing that data and acting on what you've learned through that analysis. Now, technology, new technology particularly, can help you get data that you've never had before. And that's where you should make the investments. How can we learn more about what we're doing? How can we understand better the services that we're providing? That you want to make those investments so that you can collect that data, make good decisions, and improve for the future. So what is some of that low-hanging fruit in terms of data collection and technology that every city or county should be jumping on right now? The, the easiest low-hanging fruit is look at the systems you already have. I think there's so much data sitting in government servers or you know in the cloud somewhere that, that we're collecting on a regular basis that nobody's looking at. You know, learning the basics of business intelligence, looking at the basics of data analysis, and starting to think about how can we use this data to inform our resource allocation decisions? How can we use this data to inform our systems design decisions? How can we use this data to inform how we staff? and how, what equipment we buy, you know, things like that. It also is an opportunity to look at policy questions in terms of what data we have. So do we know how, how equitable these services are being applied in our community? Do we know um, how much of the need we're covering in these services? That's been something where, you know, when I first started in local government, you'd build a program and whether it really worked or not, it, it took on a life of its own. It just kept going because you funded the program and now you had to keep funding it. More today, what I see people doing is saying, okay, we've funded this program. Are the outcomes that we intended to get from it actually materializing? Can we measure those things and can we see what's happening? That, that's the low-hanging fruit. Take the data you already have and try to determine if what you're doing is working well. Is it efficient? Is it effective? And are we getting the outcomes that we're getting? The second part of your question, you know, what kind of technologies are out there? 
you know, that's a wide open area. Um, one of the things I thought was really cool is, is when we first started hearing about the Internet of Things, you know, how can we connect things to the Internet to gather information? One of the vendors that I was talking to was putting um, cameras on the bottom of police cars who drive all over town all the time. And they were actually tracking pavement condition because they're out there all day looking at the pavement. They could catch things like a new pothole or they could do things like monitor the road conditions on major thoroughfares on an ongoing basis. That's data that we didn't have before. So looking for opportunities within these new products to find data sources that that are new to us that will give us more and better intelligence about our work, I think is really important as well. Benchmarking. In terms of you know, once we have that data, how much of that is intuition in terms of how we then apply that to real decision making? And how much of that is what we can infer other neighboring, in your case, counties are doing with that same data? Are there any specific challenges when it comes looking region to region, district to district, that local governments have that make a simple benchmark more difficult than a layman might anticipate? I think that benchmarking globally can be difficult in local government. Uh, One of the arguments you'll always hear is, you know, we have beaches, they have snow. How do those two things compare, right? But I think that's a false argument because really when you're benchmarking, what you're looking at is we have an activity that's similar to another organization's activity. We measure how well we do, they measure how well they do, and they're doing better than us. And so here's an opportunity for us to learn from them what processes and what tools they're using to pr- to produce better results. And that's where benchmarking has its power. If you're just ranking and comparing, I, I don't think that's necessarily all that helpful. If you're using it as a tool to improve, that's where you really want to focus your effort. Um, there's a story I love to tell to everybody that I talk to about uh, one of the earliest times that I used benchmarking. We were a member of the ICMA Center for Performance Measurement back in the 90s. And we got our first report. I was struggling with the question of how to reduce false alarms that were costing us millions of dollars in staff and equipment time. You know, they were sunk costs, but it was an opportunity cost. Our folks were at a house that had no emergency because an alarm went off. And then I noticed that Bellingham, Washington now, so we're down in Coral Springs, Florida, in the southeast corner of the United States, and we're talking to Bellingham, Washington, which is up in the northwest corner. They're in the they're in the north with snow and issues, and we're in the south with sunshine and, and hurricanes. Two totally different organizations, two totally different communities, but the same problem. The, but they had solved it. They had very low false alarms in their community. And they had gone from a high number down to a low number. And I was really curious as to what that was. So I called up their budget manager and we talked about it. And he you know, explained, you know, they did some research, they did some analysis of what was causing the false alarms. And they discovered that most people who were buying these systems didn't know how to operate them. So they created an alarm school. So if you had a false alarm, instead of getting a fine, like most of us would do, they would say, okay, we're going to waive your fine if you go to alarm school. And you're going to learn how to use this system. Very quickly, the people who were having the false alarms turned out to be the same people over and over again, learned how to use their systems and stopped having false alarms. They eliminated the problem for the most part. They just had a handful a year where I was having hundreds a year. That's the benchmarking portion of it. So we took their program. We took everything that they did and replicated it in our town. And don't you know, it reduced the number of false alarms by something like 75% in the first year and even more the second year. So it was hugely impactful. We didn't have to think of it. We hadn't thought of it. And probably, I got to say, I don't think I would have ever gotten there had I not reached out and asked, hey, what did you do? And that's the power of benchmarking. They measured something. We measured something. We saw there was a difference. We learned why they had a better result than we did. And we were able to use their tools to apply in our situation. So changing tech a little bit, we're going to go into moderation and mediation. You've spent time moderating some pretty contentious topics like redistricting. 
and were specifically congratulated on your inclusivity. When mediating between strong interests and personalities, how do you ensure that every voice feels heard and valued? Well, the first thing is in how you approach it. If you are not an inclusive person, if you're not going to listen to everybody who's talking, you're going to fail right off the bat. So you have you have to go in with the mindset that you are available to hear those voices and that they're valued. And so that's that's an important part that we have to kind of train ourselves to to remember that it's not just the most important people or the loudest voices that we're going to listen to, but we're going to seek out and listen to all voices. The second part of it is expectation setting. One of the things that I do as a facilitator when I'm talking to the group that I'm working with is explain to them, you know, the consensus is really we all equally lose. We, we don't all get what we want, but we feel like we've had a voice in the process and we get something. And, and, and we all feel like it was a fair approach that, that arrived at the conclusion. When I went to a, a program at Harvard, there was a, one of the teachers there, uh, Marty Linsky, talks about adaptive leadership. And he's got this great quote. He says that leadership is about disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. And I think that's, in a, in a way, it's strangely true. What your job is, is to help them come to a conclusion that they can live with rather than try to get them everything that they want. And so when you're facilitating, your job is to make sure that everybody understands that that's the goal, that we're going to find something that we can all live with and that we're not all going to get what we want and help them identify what those common themes are and where they can give something up and where they have to stick to their guns because it's really important. Are there cases in as we spoke previously, you brought up an interesting example around mask mandates locally. Are there cases where one side of the argument simply won't accept that compromise is going to have to be a reality? That happens often. And masks are a great example because there are folks who were so deeply impacted by the rules that were put in place. You know, they had asthma or they were prejudiced against because they didn't wear their mask for medical reasons or they had a child who was bullied. I mean, this is personal for them. This is not something that is is intellectual in any way, shape or form. This is visceral. And so they're very emotional about it and they and they deeply care about it. And on the other side of the equation, you have people who are afraid of getting ill or, or getting someone else ill and want to protect the community. So you know, there, there's things where you can have an intellectual discussion and come to an agreement about, you know, here's the middle ground. And there are things where there is no middle ground. You know, it's black or white for both sides. And at the end of the day, you know, that's that's the difficult part about it being an elected official is you have to make decisions that are that are good for the community, that are good for the most people, knowing that there are folks who are never going to agree with that decision. And is there anything you can do about that? Or is it simply one party is going to walk away less than happy and you just have to suck it up. Well, that's probably the the harsh way of putting it. I, I think number one, if you're doing a good job of explaining why the decisions are being made, if and and looking to mitigate some of those impacts to folks, you know, by giving them tools to to work with, whether it's you know the opportunity to get specialized medical help, whether it's you know educating the community about the fact that there are some people who can't wear a mask, you know, whatever it is, it's an education process. You you have to. You have to be open and explain to people why you're making the decision you're making, what what you're hoping the outcome will be, what you're expecting will happen because of that, and also be willing to listen to what their issues are and see what you can do to mitigate those issues through the process. I think masks were really contentious because there was very little that you could do to appease uh, some of the problems. But in most cases, they're not as black and white as that. In most cases, there are things where you can negotiate. I, I think in terms of land use cases where neighbors are really worried about what's going to happen to a piece of property, 
sometimes the the governing agency can make a change but put restrictions on it so that it doesn't impact the community too much you know those kind of things can happen all the time and and that's where public input becomes a really important process in recognizing what those issues are looking for ways to mitigate them and communicating to people about what the impact will be at the end of the day uh, mass are tough because that's like i said at a little earlier, it's a really personal thing, and some people were really impacted by it, um, and other people were very concerned about not wearing masks too. And and there is no way you're going to convince either group that they were that they, either that their concerns weren't valid because they were, or that your order was going to please everybody because it wasn't. Kevin, what are some of the main differences in the day to day between your job as the assistant county administrator and the county administrator themselves? Well, the chief administrative official for any government has the the chief responsibility of being the conduit between the staff and the elected officials. And so a good portion of their time is spent sitting with, talking to, responding to, communicating with um, elected officials, making sure that we understand their positions on things, um, helping helping them get the information they need to make policy decisions, um, you know, connecting with people in the community uh, who have issues who've been handed off from the elected officials to staff, making sure they get to the right people in the organization. So that's easily half of your time right there. Where someone in my position, I'm much more focused on the operational side of it, you know, how we're delivering services, where the resources are going, solving problems for my department directors so that they're able to be successful, creating processes that help them get their needs met helping them make difficult decisions in the face of, of competing needs and you know, things like that. So the key difference is my role is more internal facing and more supportive. The role of the county administrator is much more outward facing and um, you know, really trying to help the elected officials lead the organization. Do you have recommendations for incoming elected officials in terms of how to most get up to speed or to put it another way, what are some crucial areas, and this is going to lead on to our eventual closing question, what are some areas that you see often that elected officials coming into the local government fundamentally misunderstand and would benefit from potentially brushing up on before actually coming into local government? Is it finances? Is it operational? I'd love your input here. Well, first of all, um, whenever I talk to somebody who's thinking about running for office, the two things I tell them is if there is a Citizens Academy at your local government, to engage in that, to, to attend the sessions, to learn everything you can about it, because those programs are great. They, they really teach you what it is the government exists to accomplish and, and helps you understand how they're going about that, you know, what the structure is, what the resources are. But really, because of the fiduciary responsibility of a board or a council, I always point them to resources through the Government Finance Officers Association or through the local um, League of Cities that help them to understand the budget process and the annual financial report, because those are the two key tools that they're going to use to effectuate their policy decisions. It is so critical for them to understand how that works so that, number one, they can get their ideas into the process. In many of the cities I work for, if, if as an elected official, you had a particular project you wanted to do, the time to bring that up was during the strategic planning process. So it could become an initiative, it could get the funding it needed, and it could go into the work plan for staff to execute against. If you just brought it up at a, at a regular commission meeting or a council meeting, often it would be difficult to incorporate that without going back and changing things. And so the rest of the council would be less inclined to support it because of the impact it would have on the organization. And so understanding how the the body that you're going to try to be elected to makes those decisions is absolutely critical for your success. You need to really understand that. 
It's also important to understand what the counterplay between the taxes and fees and charges and the expenditures are. You know, how has the growth been? How well has that organization um, saved for the future? How resilient is it in the face of catastrophe? You know, do you have the reserves you need to, to respond? Those things are really important as well. And I always suggest to people that they analyze the, the history of the organization's finances and, and understand, you know, how well have they planned for financial resiliency and how, how well do they manage their money? And in the past year, I've seen a lot of local governments struggling with financial resiliency. Uh, and obviously, ARPA is going to be a bit of a, a welcome relief for, for many governments. What are the biggest challenges when it comes to that long-term financial sustainability? Is it that the funding source just isn't there to support that necessary infrastructure in, uh, investment? Where is this long-term unsustainability of the local governance model driving from? I think it's an education issue for elected officials. Um, if if the staff is creating good financial policies, promoting them to the board and asking them to for them to adopt it, it creates a, a system where, number one, you're going to make decisions by policy rather than by personality. And number two, you all understand what you're trying to accomplish through those different policies, whether it's a, a minimum fund balance policy, whether it's a use of one-time funds policy, whether it's a grants policy, whatever it is, you're being very thoughtful about what you're going to do and how you're going to use the, those monies. Organizations that haven't spent a lot of time on that tend to be more reactive. If somebody says, well, I want to do this, they don't have a reason to say, well, no, we can't. They try to accommodate it. You know, one of the phenomena that I think is absolutely interesting is people become interested in financial resiliency when they just got hammered and there's no money. Well, that's not the time you can do much about it. I mean, you have to react. You have to you know, do budget retrenchment. You have to make decisions. You may have to lay off staff, whatever it is. You're going to have to act. But that's not the time to prepare for the future. The time to prepare for the future is when things are relatively stable and you have the resources to put into those fund balances or to buy down those liabilities. And that's where the really well-run organizations have an advantage is because they're thinking about those issues when they have the opportunity rather than waiting until it's too late. Sounds very analogous to Hyman Minsky's theory that stability is inherently destabilizing and this is common in financial institutions as you look at the financial cycle after 10, 15 years without a significant crisis, regulation drops, lending criteria loosen, and as a result, you create the very conditions of destabilization. So it sounds like there are some lessons to be taken away there. For a, a closing question, and I'm pretty interested to hear your answer here, what's one accepted truth of local government, Kevin, that you think is incorrect? Uh, you know, the one, it's kind of a pet peeve for me, but to say it's incorrect is probably not completely accurate, and that is that all local government employees are inherently conservative about their career. In, in other words, they take the job because it's safe, and they don't want to work too hard. And I find that terribly frustrating because, you know, having worked in the tech industry, having worked at a manufacturing firm, having been in the U.S. military, having worked in local government, having worked in a private um, firm, I can say without reservation that some of the hardest working people I've ever worked with were the ones in local government. I understand that when you see four guys leaning on shovels around a, a site and you, and you get that idea that something is up and, and, and they're not working that hard, I, I understand how that happens, but it, it's not true. The folks in local government are super committed. They care about what they're doing and they're as hardworking as anyone. Kevin, we've learned a ton today from your massive breadth of experience about leadership, change and innovation. Thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's me again. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.